I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. going to read verses 1 through 11. Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 1, Holy Scripture says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of God and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we are gathered here because of the incomparable worth of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us and made us to be a kingdom of priests to our God. Father, I pray that through this particular word, in the prophet Isaiah, that you would give us eyes to see the glory of our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. All of humanity's woes are ultimately tied to humanity's sin. We were created for fellowship with God, but sin alienates the sinner from God. We were created to live in the blessing of God, but sin lands us in a far country, far from God's favor. When mankind is determined to do life on his own terms, he ends up in a heap of trouble, guilt and shame, humiliation and strife, judgment and death. This bitter fruit is evident 
in the life of the individual and in the fabric of society as a whole. Before the good news of comfort goes forth, there is in the background the painful reality of sin. This comfort in Isaiah chapter 40 is not sentimental reassurance for nice people, but a dispensation of mercy for people who are up to their necks in moral rebellion. A few snapshots from Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 will bring this terrible predicament into clear view. Uh, the, first, the first chapter of Isaiah, verse 4, says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, overthrown by foreigners. And then still in chapter 1, down to verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine has become mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. And then Isaiah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. The fifth chapter of Isaiah pronounces woe upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem because they do not regard the deeds of the Lord. They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the words of the Holy One of Israel. When people defy the Lord's glorious presence, disregard the Lord's mighty deeds, and despise the Lord's words, they descend into moral ugliness. They lose the dignity that befits their status as image bearers of God. And they forfeit the beauty that could have been theirs if they had welcomed the Holy One into their midst. Instead, they exchanged the glory of God for cheap substitutes. And all who do so will sooner or later come to ruin. We sing about this at Christmas time. For example, in the song, O Holy Night, we sing, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And in another hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we pray, disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows, 
put to flight. It's the world we live in. Israel's story is a microcosm of the world's story, of your story and mine. Although we have been created by God and have received countless blessings from His hand, each one of us is like a sheep that has gone astray chosen to go down our own foolish path. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Our transgressions, though often hidden from one another, are all known to God, and these transgressions stand against us because God's law declares that the just punishment for sin is the death of the sinner. To put it in terms of the sermon preached three weeks ago, God's law declares that all men, every sinner, ought to face the same end as that which befell Sodom and Gomorrah. Remarkably, not every sinner does meet that terrible end. And this fact will be celebrated in the song of the redeemed through all eternity. And this fact is what Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11, is all about. These 11 verses present us with four words, four statements, and so let's walk through them one at a time. The first word in verses 1 and 2 is the word of comfort, which beckons us to receive God's comfort. Even this very morning, you ought to hear and understand and receive God's comfort. In verses 1 and 2, God says to the prophetic messenger, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem the well-deserved words of rebuke, condemnation, and punishment are in the past, and now in their place come tender words of comfort. The messenger is instructed to cry to Jerusalem. This is not the cry of the mourner. This is the cry of the herald who has come with news to proclaim. The the pronoun her refers back to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem itself represents God's people. The message that must be cried out is, there in verse 2, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This, by the way, is straight gospel. Warfare or hardship, is the inevitable outcome of sin. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 to 39, and Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 to 68, describe the plagues, frustrations, devastations, and humiliations that would take place if Israel turned away from the Lord. The Leviticus 26 passage begins with panic, wasting disease, and fever, consuming uh, the eyes and making the heart ache. The Leviticus 26 passage concludes with the people of Israel perishing among the nations and rotting away in their enemies' lands. The Deuteronomy 28 passage begins with the Lord sending curses, confusion, and frustration into every aspect of life. And it concludes with the people returning to Egypt, which signifies the undoing of the exodus. God redeemed his people out of Egypt, but to Egypt they would return 
if they fell into persistent rebellion. And time and again, Israel, the northern kingdom, walked in rebellion. Time and again, Judah, the southern kingdom, and its capital city, Jerusalem, turned away from the Lord. And as a consequence, the Lord afflicted his people with impoverishments, defeats, and eventual captivity. Israel, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah's prophetic ministry was focused on Jerusalem and on Judah. From the vantage point of Isaiah's own lifetime, which was several hundred years before the Messiah came, but from the vantage point of Isaiah's lifetime, the defeat and captivity of Judah was still more than a hundred years into the future. But the prophecy of Isaiah foretells a day when the burden of punishment comes to an end. Instead of warfare, peace. Instead of hardship, mercy. Instead of judgment, salvation. Her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. The pardoning of iniquity and the ending of hardship are closely connected. Where there is unforgiven sin, there is God's displeasure and opposition. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. And as long as a person's ungodliness and unrighteousness remain unforgiven, God's wrath continues to abide on that person. Where there is unforgiven sin, guilt and shame and punishment remain. Where there is unforgiven sin, conflict grows and trouble persists. The bitter fruit of hardship grows on the rotten tree of iniquity. So, if the bitter fruit is going to be removed, then the rotten tree must be cleansed. If the consequence of sin is going to be removed, then the offense of sin must be removed. And this is the promise of verse 2. Your iniquity is pardoned. Your sin is forgiven. Your debt is cleared. When God forgives sin, he removes his wrath and relates to his people with compassion. As was read earlier from Isaiah chapter 54, verses 7 and 8. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. And in overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but... With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The forgiveness of sins cannot be demanded from God's hand. It is a free gift, freely given, on account of God's mercy. And whenever and wherever God gives this wonderful gift, the recipients of such mercy are truly blessed. As David testifies, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The good news of Isaiah 40 verse 2 is that the debt of sin is cleared away and the devastations caused by sin are brought to an end. And to these two declarations, a third aspect of the good news is brought out, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Generally speaking, if we heard that we had received double or complete punishment for all of our sins, there would be no comfort in that, 
mainly because the double or complete punishment for sins would have completely ruined us. In in, uh, Revelation chapter 18, we are told about Babylon the Great. And Babylon the Great is repaid double for her sinful deeds. And there is no redemption for Babylon the Great. Revelation chapter 18 communicates a definitive, irreversible judgment upon Babylon. But the message of Isaiah 40 verses 1 and 2 is overwhelmingly positive. So how is the statement that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, how is that good news? Well, it probably means that the punishment that she has received up until this point, which devastated her but did not utterly ruin her, is enough. The punishment has been poured out in full measure and there is nothing left to be poured out. And there's a remnant of people who remain and now grace is ready to be poured out upon them. So the good news is that the punishment has been exhausted and now the only thing left to be poured out upon them is the mercy of God. The appointed days of wrath have come to an end and the appointed day of salvation has arrived. When it comes to the way in which God redeems his people, God God appoints the end of the strife of sin, her warfare is ended. He appoints the end of the guilt of sin, her iniquity is pardoned. And he appoints the end of the punishment of sin, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. By putting sin's punishment, sin's guilt, and sin's strife out of the way, God has cleared the way to come and be with his people. And that's exactly the trajectory of thought in the passage. So this brings us to the second word in verses 3 to 5, which is the word of preparation and anticipation. This second word invites us to prepare to see God's glory. The comforting word that God has decreed mercy upon us has set the stage for God to announce his glorious arrival. Of course, God's arrival always cuts in two directions. God's arrival is bad news for people who remain in their sin. For the wicked who continue in their wickedness, God's coming brings about their final demise. But God's arrival is good news for people who have been rescued out of their sin, which is obviously the emphasis here, as we just read about in verse 2. God's glorious coming is a wonderful gift to those whose hearts have been captured by his grace. Notice the flow of thought. In verses 3 to 5, first, preparations should be made for God's arrival. Prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. As Isaac Watts wrote, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. On a very practical level, what this means is having the kind of heart and the kind of home, and the kind of life, and the kind of church family that if the Lord paid us a visit, 
we would be ready for him. We would be ready because his word had already found a warm place in our heart. We would be ready because we had been anticipating his arrival all along. We would be ready because we were already seeking to honor him, obey him, and worship him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three books of the New Testament, make it clear that John the Baptist is the one whose voice cries out in keeping with Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. And John exhorted the people to prepare for God's arrival. And how did he do that? He proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this shows us that the promise of forgiveness in verse 2 is not a free-floating gift, but is a gift that is received in conjunction with repentance. You cannot receive God's comforting word of forgiveness while you are still enthralled with your sin. But when the burden of sin's strife and sin's guilt and sin's punishment bear down on a poor sinner and he feels his need of grace, Then he hears the good news of God's pardoning grace and he begins to reorder his life in accordance with God's instruction. Repentance is preparation for God's coming. Second, moving to verse 4, God's arrival will level the world. The valleys lifted up. The mountains and hills brought low. The uneven ground made level. The rough places made straight. This leveling of the world is not actually about topography. It's actually about the world being turned on its head and straightened out from God's point of view. Mary got it, Luke 1. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he is sent away empty. Paul got it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The purpose of this great leveling out has nothing to do with mankind's foolish social justice projects. About the least desirable thing in the universe, from my point of view at least, is to have sinful people attempting to engineer a great social and economic leveling out. God will do the leveling out. But here's the thing. The leveling out, the flattening out, the straightening out of the world has one chief purpose. To enable everyone to get a clear view of the glory of God. Let every human being stand on level ground. Let no human being have obstacles in his line of sight. Let every human being lift up his or her eyes to see the God who comes in glory. You prepare for God's coming verse 3, by getting your heart, expectations, and values aligned with the great leveling out, verse 4, which basically means humbling yourself before the Lord 
and hungering for his rule to govern the world. And this brings us to the great promise of verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Listen, we were not created in order for our eyes to be perpetually fixed upon created things, upon mountains and hills, upon famous and influential people, or even upon the stars of heaven. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Good echo of verses 6 to 8 there. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The high point of human experience is to stand in awe of the holiness of God to worship him in the splendor of his majesty and to rejoice in his all-satisfying glory. And this high point can only be attained by people who are not impressed with themselves. And this takes us to the third word. In verses 6 to 8, the third word is the word of humility. This statement is introduced by another call for the prophetic messenger to cry out, to proclaim a message. And the overwhelming point of verses 6 to 8 is to put man in his proper place. And so this third word implores us to humble ourselves beneath the Word of God. As long as we are impressed with ourselves and unimpressed with God's Word, which is the terrible predicament that most of the world is in, we will be woefully unprepared to see the glory of the Lord when it appears before us. If the rulers of this age had understood the wisdom of God and had not been enthralled with the world's value system, then they would not have crucified the Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2.8. But they didn't see the Lord of glory as glorious when he stood before them and when he spoke to them. They were impressed with the world's words, but not with God's words. If you are impressed with God's words, however, you will not be impressed with yourself. Because God's word says, all flesh is grass, verse 6, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What are you? You are like a blade of withering grass. You are like a fading flower. Your vibrancy and vitality are ebbing away. Understood collectively, humanity is like a decaying grain field or a drooping flower garden. We are like vanishing mists. 
here for a transitory moment and then gone, James 4, 14. We are like little grasshoppers. I just read that from later in Isaiah 40. We're like little grasshoppers in comparison to the God who stretches out the heavens. As a nation, we are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. That's Isaiah 40, verse 15. In terms of brilliance and glory and might, God is not impressed with us. Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8, is a divine arrow against the futile project of humanism. Mankind's attempt to make man the measure of all things. Humanity's attempt to deify itself. People's attempt to glorify themselves and parade their glory in front of each other. Government's attempt to make itself the ultimate lawmaker, judge, and savior of the world. All of these things are obnoxious in God's sight. In truth, we are weak and frail and mortal creatures, and on top of our finitude and neediness, we are also sinful creatures, as we already learned in verse 2. So, sons and daughters of Adam, clothe yourselves with humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do not be impressed with your life, your contributions, your legacy. Instead, discover the joy and freedom of being what God Almighty intends you to be. Strive for nothing more. Settle for nothing less. Stand in awe of what comes forth from the mouth of the Lord. If he simply blows on you with the breath of his mouth, you're gone. Verse 7. And hang on his words because his words are uniquely durable. The word of our God will stand forever. If your life is tethered to his everlasting words, then you will discover abiding significance. If your life is disconnected from his everlasting words, the outer darkness awaits. The very structure of verses 1 to 9 is designed to anchor your confidence in the word of God. The reality that gives authority to the comforting words of verses 1 and 2 is that they are God-authorized words. Verse 1, comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Likewise, the reality that gives authority to the prophet's proclamation in verses 3 to 5 is found at the end of verse 5, the mouth, uh, which says that the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So verses 6 to 8 function as a punctuation mark on verses 1 to 5. God says, verse 1, The mouth of the Lord has spoken, verse 5. The word of our God will stand forever, verse 8. Are you like the wise man who built his house on the rock? You hear and understand the words of the Lord and put them into practice? Or are you like the foolish man who built his house on the sand? You hear the words of the Lord, but you disregard them. And you are ill-equipped for that great storm. That will inevitably inevitably come. Listen, the world wants you to be self-inventive and self-assertive with respect to your own identity and worth. And the world wants you to be cynical about any supposed revelation from God to mankind. In other words, the world wants you to be impressed with yourself 
but unimpressed with God's words. The truth of what is actually good for you, however, runs in the exact opposite direction. What you actually ought to do is to cherish and trust God's words. And you ought to be distrustful of any attempt to establish your identity, security, and worth independently of God. In other words, you ought to be unimpressed with yourself, but very impressed and overwhelmed by the words that come from the mouth of the Lord. Blessed is the man who stands on the word of God because the word of God will will never be pulled out from under his feet. God's word proves to be a durable and unfailing support to those who lean upon it. So, the first three words are complete, and the fourth word awaits. The first three words have prepared us for the fourth word. First, receive God's comfort. Your sins are forgiven. Second, prepare to see the glory of God. Depart from the sins that God has pardoned and discover that manner of life that is pleasing to the Lord. Third, humble yourself under God's everlasting word. Don't be enthralled with the self-governed life, but let God's words hold sway over you. Thus oriented to God's word and to God's anticipated coming and to God's comfort, the believer is now ready for the grand announcement. And that's the fourth word in verses 9 to 11, the grand announcement. We know that this is the grand announcement because it is set up in such lofty terms. Go on up to a high mountain. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Fear not. Whatever is about to be said is so important that it must be declared fearlessly with a strong voice from a high mountain so that the word that thunders from this mountain would cascade down to the hills, valleys, and plains below. Another thing that stands out uh, in the setup for this grand announcement is that the messenger is specifically identified as Zion, which is synonymous with Jerusalem. And earlier we learned that Jerusalem is synonymous with God's people. So this says, uh, O Zion, herald of good news. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. And so God's people resident in Jerusalem are cast as heralds, as evangelists to the rest of the nation. Right? O Jerusalem, verse 9, say to the cities of Judah, and this makes me think of the gospel word being proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, Luke 24, 47, and from Jerusalem first flanning out to Judea and then to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. What is this good news? that Jerusalem is called upon to herald to the cities of Judah. It's simply this. Behold your God. That's what they had been told to prepare for. The God whose word stands forever. The God whose word announces forgiveness. The God whose word foretold that his glory would be revealed to all people. Now this God has actually come to his people. The comforting word of God Verse 1 is now conjoined to the comforting presence of God. Verse 11, the coming of God to save his people is the good news. The coming of God to enact his promises is the good news. The coming of God to reveal his glory for the good of his people is the good news. 
Verse 9 puts it simply, behold your God. And then verses 10 and 11 elaborate upon the significance of his coming. Verse 10 describes his coming in general terms. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He comes as the mighty and sovereign king who will establish his kingdom, accomplish his purpose, and render just judgment upon men. He has the authority and power to implement the great leveling of verse 4. Verse 11 describes his coming specifically in terms of how he relates to his own people. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What a wonderful and glorious juxtaposition of concepts in verses 10 and 11. Behold the glory of the Lord. The sovereign Lord is like a shepherd who takes care of his flock. Behold the glory of the Lord. The arm that rules is the same arm that gathers the lambs. Behold the glory of the Lord. The one who has the authority to judge all men holds his own people close to his heart. Behold the glory of the Lord, the one who is mighty, verse 10, and who brings princes to nothing, verse 23. He gently leads the most vulnerable ones, verse 11. Behold the glory of the Lord, majestic and pastoral, sovereign and personal, mighty and gentle. Indeed, the Lord leverages his power for the good of his people, as it says at the end of Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint those faint and fading flowers of verse 7 are made strong and resilient by the power of the Lord the weary and withering blades of grass in verse 7 are refreshed and renewed by the everlasting God whose everlasting words nourish his people. Then we, in our own time and place, can lift up our voice with strength and without fear declare to all who will listen that God has come to bring eternal comfort and good hope through grace to all who call upon his name. The message of Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11, is timeless. It was powerful in the 8th century B.C., and it's powerful in the 21st century A.D. But the timelessness of the message is tied to the fact that the Lord God did indeed come to his people at a particular time and in a particular place. When Matthew chapter 3 and Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 reference Isaiah 40 verse 3 in reference to the ministry of John the Baptist, what they mean is that John had a unique role in exhorting the people to prepare for the coming 
of the Lord God. John prepared the way for who? For the Lord God to come, Isaiah 43. Who came? Jesus. Who is Jesus? The Lord God, promised in Isaiah 40, verse 3. Jesus is the Lord God who came to save his people. Jesus is the Lord God who came with might, casting out demons, healing diseases, forgiving sins, raising the dead, performing miracles, and proclaiming the good news. Jesus is the Lord God who came with gentleness, gathering disciples, patiently instructing them, and equipping them to be participants in his kingdom. Jesus is the Lord God who rebuked the storm and who blessed the little children. Jesus is the Lord God who revealed his glory in the most remarkable way. The word became flesh. The word that endures forever. The word that brings life. The word that promises forgiveness. The living word enfleshed as man. And the word became flesh, John 1.14, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, echoes Isaiah 40, verse 5. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The God-man was able to be seen and looked upon and touched and heard. Although he was able to outwit his opponents, and did, He delighted to reveal the riches of his grace to ordinary people who had a disposition to trust him. He fed the hungry with words of life, but the rich who clung to their riches he sent away empty-handed. Jesus is the Lord God who enacted his words of comfort in a most unexpected way. These words of comfort in Isaiah 40 verses 1 and 2 must ultimately be declared and understood in the light of the cross. Sin's punishment was exhausted at the cross. The Lord God received from his own hand double for all the sins of his people. Sin's guilt was removed at the cross. His people's iniquity is pardoned because his own blood was shed to make atonement. Sin's warfare was ended at the cross through his sacrifice, Jesus brought his people into peaceful relations with the Father and with one another, those who trust him. For those who believe, the captivity is done. The exile is over. The shame is taken away. All this because Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And so I say to you on this fourth Sunday of Advent, behold your God, the good shepherd, the spotless lamb and sacrifice, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, who saves his people from their sins. Let's pray. Father, I pray especially at Christmas time that you would sanctify us and rescue us from being preoccupied with all the wrong things, our plans, our words, our ideas, our schedules. Father, I pray that you would put within this congregation and within every heart a earnest 
desire to hear the words of God, to be governed by the words of God, to have those words open up to us, the riches of your grace and the glory of your Son and the promise to which you have called us. Father, do this work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.